Father, we do thank you and praise you for this time that we have uh, to gather, to worship you, uh, to fellowship with one another. Uh, Lord, we ask that as we uh, turn our attention to the scriptures, uh, Father, we ask that your spirit would lead us, that he would guide us, that he would um, illuminate the word which you have revealed to us. Lord, help us to understand this this passage in context, uh, Father, I pray um, that you would convict us, that you would give us assurance, um, that you would help us to understand uh, the things that are mentioned in today's passage. Um, some can be troubling to those with sensitive consciences, and so we ask, Lord, um, that you would help us to rightly understand uh, the things that are said in today's passage. Lord, I pray that your, uh, your grace would abound as we work through this passage and that we would um, just come to know you uh, in a clear light. We ask that uh, we would better understand grace. We would better understand um, the relationship that we have with you in Christ. And we do pray for those, uh, Lord, that... Um, <coughs> maybe have not reached the place in their lives where um, they have received Christ as Savior. We ask that you would help them now. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Mark chapter 3, verse 20. <clears throat> and he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit." And Father, we do thank you again for this day. We thank you for this opportunity that we can gather in freedom and in peace uh, to worship you, to learn about you, uh, to study your word. We ask that you would guide us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we, uh, we, we, pick, up our, we pick up our story from last week. week. Um, some, some time has gone by. Uh, last week we saw... The, the word about Jesus had spread like wildfire. I mean, the, the, the world is descending on Galilee, and 
there's, there's people from all walks of life, all different cultures. It's not just Jewish people. There's, there's Jewish people. There's Gentiles. The world was there pressing around on Jesus, um, seeking uh, to experience some of what they'd heard about the miracles. And so the story picks up that he'd come home. Uh, this, this is believed to be uh, in Capernaum. It's the rectangle on the map. So this seems to be the, the headquarters of Jesus's ministry. And so Jesus had come home. Uh, we, do, we don't know the home. There's all kinds of speculation. This could be Peter's house or his in-law's house. Um, but there seemed to be a house that, that Jesus sort of headquartered out of. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. And so this is the same old story. The crowds are pressing in on him. Uh, that Jesus and the disciples aren't even able to, to get a meal because there's so much pressure and, and demand on them. Um, as we look at the map, so we're, we're dealing with Capernaum. It's, the nor- it's north a little bit west of the Sea of Galilee. Last week we saw that the crowds came from everywhere. In today's story, we'll see uh, Jesus' family, which I'll get into, or his own people, um, are going to come from the, the northern oval. This is the town of Nazareth where Jesus uh, was, was from. And, and so they're going to come to Capernaum. And then we're going to see that the religious leaders from Jerusalem, they're going to make their descent. So just so you geographically um, ha- have an idea of what the movement of, of where it's going on the land. Um, t- today's section is something that Mark does a lot and, you know, the deep theological terminology for, for today's passage, it's called a sandwich section. Uh, we all know sandwiches. There's bread, there's meat, and there's bread. Okay? So <clears throat> the bread in today's section is part one, the family. And then we deal with the religious leaders coming to confront Jesus. And then part three really is the text that will be covered next week is the family part two. So we kind of see... The family movement begins, and then it picks up um, after we deal with the, the scribes. And so my aim today is just to focus on the, the meat of the matter of, of the scribes and their accusation against Jesus. There will be some overlap between the two weeks, but next week the focus will be dealing with Jesus's family and how they responded to him and um, their concerns. Um, but we'll ease into it a little bit today. And so in verse 21, we read, When his own people heard of this, they went to take custody of him, for they were saying that he has lost his senses. And so when his own people, some translations, I think a lot of the translations, I think the NIV, I think the ESV, um, I didn't memorize all the different ones, but a lot of them actually say that Jesus' family came, and they identified as his family. Um, the, the sort of the literal language of it was when his own people, and this is a Greek idiom that it, it can be translated a bunch of different ways. It can mean friends, it can mean family, it can mean associates. And so to kind of identify who's being talked about, it's the context. And so if we follow it down to verse 31, we see that Jesus, then his mother and his brothers had arrived. And, and so we see that in the immediate context, his, his family shows up. And so that's why a number of the translations just go ahead and, and insert into the text that this is his family. Um, 
His family went to take custody of him. This is literally to place him into rest, to take him by strength, and to, to, like, you've gone too far. We're taking you home. Um, Jesus' culture, the culture of most of the world, not in the United States so much, is, is a really a shame and honor culture. And so the word had spread, as we saw last week in that map, that the whole world is descending on Jesus. Um, he had been teaching. He'd been healing people um, to authenticate the teaching. And in many ways, he'd been challenging the religious establishment. And this, for good Jewish people, was not a good thing. And so the world knew about this Jesus from Nazareth. And so the family in Nazareth is like, their whole name is being marred in the mud. The things that Jesus is saying and doing, and they had had enough. There's, there's a lot we could consider about this. It's like, well, Mary certainly knew about Jesus. Like his brothers were, you know, I don't want to chase that rabbit trail. We'll chase that rabbit trail tomorrow about, or not tomorrow, pastor's mind. Tomorrow's next Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> next week, when we, we'll focus more on the family. But so the, the family is basically saying, he's gone crazy. He's absolutely lost his mind. And for the sake of the family's name, we're going to have to aggressively take him into custody, bring him back to Nazareth, um, so, so he can be sort of taken off the scenes and hopefully our family's name will be restored. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I've experienced a little bit of this uh, in giving my life to Christ. Suddenly you're a freak in your family, <laughs> like, or my family, maybe not your family. But Gunner's kind of known as the Jesus freak. And I'm always made fun of it, and I don't, like, they probably would like to haul me in off the street and, and, and shut my mouth. But, but a lot of people who give their lives to Christ don't come from Christian circles, don't come from Christian families, especially as we start going into the Muslim world. There are steep consequences to, to pay for following after Christ. And so if that's you, you're in good company because Jesus was the same way, the original Jesus freak. Uh, that that he, he rubbed everybody the wrong way. And so they're not happy about it. But we get into verse 22, the meat, the middle section of, of the, the story. And so we read that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem, they came down. It looks like they went up on the map, <laughs> like... But Jerusalem is very high in elevation. It's, I, I forget the actual elevation of Jerusalem. But going to Jerusalem from anywhere, you go up to Jerusalem. And to go from Jerusalem anywhere, you go down there. Because it's literally, um, you're going down in elevation. The, the scribes are sort of, they could be described like sort of the, the lawyers. Th these are of, of the religious leaders the upper echelon of the leaders. And so like everybody else, they'd heard about this Jesus. They'd heard about his challenging their system, their Sabbath rules, uh, their popularity and, and their authority has been challenged. And so they're going to go find Jesus and they're going to deal with Jesus. There's, there's no, uh, they're not going to Jesus to, uh, to sit at his feet and to learn about him and to, to hear what he has to say um, about his teaching, they've gone there with a pre-made-up mind about what the situation is, and they're there to squash him. 
They're going to end this. And so they come down from Jerusalem and they say he's possessed by Belzebul. Now, Belzebul is a play on words in, in Hebrew to another Belzebul, something or other, which is the, the god of the local area. The, the, the right word, I should have written it down, but I would just be hacking it anyhow. But it sounds like Belzebul, and it's, it was describing Baal, and it was a term that meant um, the prince of Baal. It, it, so the non-Jewish people in that area, they referred to their god as the, the, the prince of Baal. And so the Jews took that word, and they took a word that sounded similar to the same word, and they said Belzebul which then translates, the understanding is, is the, the nice way of saying it would be the Lord of the Flies. But if you want to figure out where flies are most located, it would be around dung. So you guys are all country people. You can sow the Lord of the Flies. And so that was their derogatory statement of other, this, this, the major religion in the area. And so their accusation is that he's possessed by Belzebul. And the miracles that he's doing, the things that he's saying, he's doing this because he's possessed by these demons. Basically, their accusation is that Jesus is of the devil. They're not denying the miracles. They're not denying the things that he's saying. They're not denying any of his authority that he's demonstrated. They're saying the power by which he's doing all of these things is demonic activity. So, so this is huge. You don't get any worse of an accusation. And, and this accusation, I'm going to say it a bunch of times because as we get to the quote-unquote unpardonable sin that we all know about, that's not really mentioned in Scripture, that the phrase unpardonable sin is not in Scripture, but it's a term there's unforgivable sin. That, so, so the idea of the unpardonable sin is there. And in dealing with this issue, we need to understand the context. And so the context is the religious leaders have come. They've acknowledged what Jesus is doing. And they're saying, what the Messiah is doing, what God is doing, is being done by the power of Satan. And all of this activity, all of this buzz, it's creating the people, this is demonic. And so Jesus decides to bring them in for a conversation. <laughs> Verse 23. Um, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Um, we'll see later or in other places when Jesus is asked by the disciples, hey, why do you always teach in parables? And, and so uh, he says, well, I do it to, to hide what I'm saying from those that aren't interested, but, but a, in a way to convey truth to those that ears are open. And so the parable will come, but first he kind of, he confronts them with logic. Like, you guys are idiots. Like, what are you saying? Like, do you realize what you're even saying? You're saying the demonic activity that I'm doing, or you're saying the activity that I'm doing is demonic. And so he asked him first, how can Satan cast out Satan? Like, why would Satan, 
who's the prince of this present world, who is holding people in bondage. Sin has wreaked havoc on the world. We see it in death, sickness, the way people treat one another, all of these things. This is the strong man in this earth. And so you're saying that Satan in building up his kingdom on this earth has then come into me and I'm now acting as Satan's agent to unravel the very things that Satan is doing. How's that possible? Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If there's a kingdom and there's a, a mole or somebody who's an agent that's trying to undermine the things that are doing, it's, it's, it's going to dissolve. He goes on to say the same thing. Within a, if a house is divided against itself, a house will not be able to stand. This is clear. There needs to be unity. This is why Jesus, I think in John 27, John, John 27, John, 7, John 17, 27 so, seems to sound good. Uh, probably because we're covering 27 today. But when he prays the high priestly prayer, what does he pray? He prays after he departs that his followers would be united. And if there was unity, the world would know that there's something different. And I do think one of Satan's plans over and over again is to try to bring division within the body of Christ. Um, And so he just says, if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. This is common sense. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. He's finished. And so he's, he's, he's confronting them and saying, no matter how you slice your accusation, it's just not logical. It's actually kind of foolish. Because what's Jesus done to this, up to this point? He's healed a paralytic. Um, I know he healed a couple of the guys. You kind of lose track of all the people that, he, that he's healed, but he's, he's healed people. He's challenged the Sabbath rules. Um, he healed the guy with a withered hand, which was about the Sabbath. So he hasn't done anything bad. He's, he's, he's liberated those that were held in captivity. And so then he goes on in verse 27, and he says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and he will plunder his house. So this is the parable. And we have to kind of keep keep the pieces sort of organized. Um, So the strong man is Satan, okay? The one who's breaking into the house is Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying, but no one can enter the strong man's house. Jesus has entered this world. He's, He's come into human flesh, The ruler of this world is Satan. Satan has wreaked havoc on this world and individuals. And so he says, if you're going to break into a guy that's really big house, you better be stronger than he is. You better be able to bind him up. You better be able to put him in his place or that guy's going to thrash you. Like I know, I think in the paper this week, I read that... uh, you know, you always, I don't know, 
maybe I'm not allowed to say this up here, but it is always like you feel good for the good guys, you know, like so-and-so breaks into the house. Like I think it happened in San Diego this week. Somebody breaks into the house. The homeowner basically plumbled the guy. The police officers got there and the guy dies. And so Jesus would say, hey, if you're going to break into the house, make sure you can take the individual. Because if you can't, you're going to get into trouble. But if you're bigger, stronger, better prepared, you break into somebody's house, you tie them up, you can plunder all you want. And what Jesus is saying is, he's come into the earth, he's stronger than Satan. Genesis 3.15 says that uh, uh, Satan will, will uh, bruise, I think it's bruises head, bruises heel, but he will be crushed. And so Jesus said, I've come into this world, I'm bringing a new kingdom. I'm stronger than Satan. Satan is effectively a dead man walking. What they say to guys like on death row, that they're, they're alive, but the punishment has been placed on them, and they're going to go down. And he's like, all I'm doing is releasing those. Satan has come. He has people in bondage to drugs, to abuse, to all sorts of things. He's like, I've come in. I've bound Satan. He can't do anything to me or my message and I'm slowly releasing the captives. They've been set free. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so now as we move from 27 to verse 28, we move into the context of, of, of the, the quote-unquote unpardonable sin, which we see in verse 29. Um, the key to any Bible verse is, is context. You know, in real estate, they say the number one rule is... Come on, guys. Or maybe they give you guys a real estate lesson. It's not just one. I was trying to get a sip of water. You guys are supposed to say location, location, location. With Bible study, it's context, context, context. So always context is, is, is rules the day with Scripture. We, we've... we've uh, become a, a culture that likes to cut and paste Bible verses and to use them out of context. Um, and, and so we come to this unpardonable sin section and we lose the whole context. And um, for some individuals that have sensitive consciences, this can be a very troubling passage. I'll never forget... Um, the first time I really encountered somebody, and I think it's the only person that I've ever encountered. But when Anna and I, it was like right when we first got married, we went to a, a Spanish-speaking church in National City. And I was still in the Navy, and, and we were, I don't know, I was teaching a Bible study or something. I don't even remember the details. But it was me and Anna and this lady that was essentially a, like a transient-type lady and she'd been coming for multiple weeks, and I genuinely believe that this lady was saved. Um, but one day she came in, and she was just she was bawling and, and just troubled. And she said, I know what you guys are saying. I, I, know, um, I, I know what you're saying about the gospel, but the problem is, is I've committed the unpardonable sin, and I can never, ever be forgiven. And at that stage in my life, I definitely was not qualified to be like, 
you know, that's how you get qualified is you start subjecting yourself to these things. And I'm like, lady, I, well, I said her name. I just don't remember her name. Is like, I think that the way you're feeling, it's impossible for you to have committed this because it, the way you're feeling in itself proves that you didn't aren't, or aren't doing this. And it was really troubling and really sad because this lady was convinced that like 20 years ago, before she was a Christian, she basically like told God, blow off, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in any of this. And I don't want any part of it. Now her life unfolded and she came to the spot where she accepted Christ as her Savior. And she recognized Christ as or Jesus as Christ, as the Lord. But still deep within her, Satan was telling her, you're not forgiven, you're not pardoned, because when you were 16 years old, you told God to buzz off. And it's an extreme case, but I think that we all do this. Um, we might not use the phrase unpardonable sin, but Christ says, you know what, in the cross you're forgiven. Everything that you've done, past, present, or future, I've paid for fully on the cross. And if you come to me and you accept the gift, you're forgiven. But it's so hard for us to accept that forgiveness. We might understand it cognitively, but then we go about our lives beating ourselves up for things and sins, things, sins that we've done in the past that we think are unforgivable. And we believe that God's letting us off the hook too easily by just forgiving us. And so we're going to beat ourselves up for the rest of our lives. And so we might not view it as the unpardonable sin, not from this passage, but I think that many of us don't understand the grace of God and understand that no matter what you've done, if you've come to Christ and you've bowed your knee and you've confessed and you believe in him, your sins are washed away white as snow. White as snow. And we need to remind ourselves of this. And so in order to understand the unpardonable sin in verse 29, I want to handle this, pa this, this passage in sort of reverse order. So let's go to verse 30. You know, the who, what, where, when, why. Like, so this is the first question. Why, why does verse 29 happen? Why does Jesus mention that there's a sin that's unforgivable? And so in verse 30, we get this a reminder by Mark of the context. And what he says is because. So what he says in verse 29, which is the verse that deals with the, the unpardonable sin, he then tacks on, because they, who were the they, the they is the scribes, who had come down from Jerusalem and they were saying, as they watched Jesus perform these miracles and healings and the teaching and challenging of the establishment, they said that the power by which the Son of God was doing these things was through satanic power. So the reason that Jesus said what he said in verse 29 is because they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. This is, this is the why we... we we cannot lose context of this. Um, say it again. He'd been teaching powerful things. And, and one of the Gospels, it said, I think it was in Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that he taught in ways 
that no other leader taught. He taught with authority. And then as he taught, you know, I think of the paralytic that was let down from the roof. And he looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, only God can say that. Jesus looks at him and says, well, what's it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? <laughs> I'm, not asking, I'm not answering any of your questions, Jesus, because every time I do, you just kind of like. And then he looks at the guy and says, get up and walk. So we see that this healing of the paralytic authenticated the words of Jesus, that this guy's sins were forgiven. And he's challenging the religious quo. The religious leaders see their authorities being threatened. They come down and they start making these huge accusations against the Son of God. So they rejected everything about him. And we can't lose sight of this as we go to verse 29. So in verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I believe that this is probably the, uh, the sin unto death that uh, John writes about in his epistles. And how do we attack this? Like, um, so first off, the context. Why was this said? Verse 30. This was said because those that were standing before him, they were saying that Jesus was propelled, motivated, had his authority, had his power, everything was demonic. And so they were accrediting the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life to that of Satan. So that's blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm trying to like read all my notes and figure out which one I... I, I um, when we look at Jesus, and the, the question always comes up about the ex- exclusivity of Jesus and his claims, um, how do we as Christians hold this, like, the right of exclusivity to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Um, the first thing is to say that it originated from Jesus. Like, we didn't, we're not the ones who came up with this. Like, and I, and I, I would go out on a limb and say that all Christians would be, oh, happy if, like, all routes to God worked its way out that way. The problem, though, is Jesus. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Um, we see God's plan from Genesis all the way to Revelation, places this Messiah front and center as sort of the gate by which all prob- the, the main problem of man is solved is that we've been separated from God. And so because of sin, we we're now have broken fellowship, broken relationship with the God who created us. And therefore, the very thing that we were created for to bring glory to God, to worship him, to enjoy him in all things is no longer possible because of the sin that lies within us. But the beauty of the gospel, God says, for I so love the world that I sent my only begotten son to the earth, that Christ came, that God provided a way that we might 
establish a relationship with him again. It's by his grace through our faith and believing what Jesus did. So God has provided this, this peace, this option, that if you want to get right with God, if you want your sins paid for, here's the offer. There's my son. And so what this unpardonable sin is, you can't remove the option that God has provided and still have forgiveness for your sins. So this isn't really a bad thing. Like, God says, you want to be forgiven? I want you to be forgiven. I want everybody to be forgiven. I desire that every man comes to salvation. So much so that I've given my only son and that the, the, the weight of the sin of the world has been placed upon him. He's taken care of everything and all you have to do is respond with acceptance. And so the unpardonable sin is you saying, I don't like that option. I'm going to this option. And God says, well, that option doesn't work. You might want to fix your problem doing good works. You might want to fix your problem doing whatever. You fill in the blank. Those options aren't going to get you anywhere. You want forgiveness? You go through Jesus. You reject Jesus. You're rejecting the option that God is giving you. And so to die in that state of rejection That's the unpardonable sin. There is no purgatory. There isn't. There isn't any, oh, you have a loved one who died, so let's just start mass, like let's just go to the graveyard and get a bunch of names and just start doing baptisms by proxy. I mean, this is what major religions do. There, There isn't an alternate path. There aren't many roads to God. Christ is our only hope. There's no turning back after you've died. The only time you have to respond to Christ is in this life. And if you reject Christ in this life, there's no way to undo the option that God has presented to you. Like, how can I say this? Doesn't seem very kind. Well, now let's remember the context. We looked at the why this was said. Now let's go at verse 28. I wanted to end on the, the part that's so often overlooked and is not highlighted by, by like those that are struggling with like maybe when I was 16 and I basically turned my back on God and I said some really harsh things to him. But now at 60, I'm bending my knee to him. Will he forgive me? Even though the things I said, I said were horrific. Verse 28. Satan doesn't want you to have this in your heart. And he's gonna, he'll, he, he doesn't want this to be known by us because he wants us to question our position before God. When God wants us to know absolutely that through the blood of Christ, you are absolutely Pure. Jesus was our substitute on the cross if you've received his gift. And so Jesus says, leading up to the verse that we know is the unpardonable sin, he says, amen, or truly I say to you. This is absolute authoritative. He's speaking to the scribes, so this whole thing backfires on them. Like, Some of your sins may be forgiven, 
like circle the word all. Like I'm pretty sure like all, like I, I, I'm saying this just guessing, but because it's in my, but I'm pretty sure in all the translations it says the word all. A-L-L is there. All sins shall be forgiven. The sons of men. And just in case there's any question about this whole, uh, this, the sin of blaspheming the spirit, which he mentions in verse 29, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Those two words, all and whatever. The unpardonable sin deals with dying while rejecting Jesus. Because if you're rejecting Jesus, you're basically saying that you don't buy into the Bible's claims that he's actually the Son of God. That the things that he did and manifested to many, many people were the work of the Spirit. You, in essence, are saying that he's satanic. This is make-believe. He says all sins can be forgiven. Now, this isn't saying that's universalism. Universalism is the idea that you see in our culture when anybody dies. Because when anybody dies in our culture, what do we say? They're in a better place, right? (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe. But, But universalism says they take these verses also out of context. Says, all sins shall be forgiven. That's not what it's saying. The, the context of the Gospels is that the Messiah came, he went to the cross without sin, and then he offered the perfect offering. And for those that will bend their knee and humble themselves before God and confess Jesus is Lord, that they recognize that what he went through, he was doing on our behalf. He's not saying just all people will be forgiven because if that was the case, why would there be verse 29? Because in verse 29, he says there's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the greatest question that we each need to answer is what have you done with Jesus? Because I do think if you're apart from Jesus and you die, you're going to stand before God and it's not going to be like, well, I'm, I'm arguing with myself. There's going to be like what you've done, like your sin, but it's also what did you do with Jesus and you rejected Jesus and you're, you're out of luck, which is another bad phrase to say. For like you're, you don't know the right person <laughs> to get in. But he says, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. There, there is no sin that is unpardonable. Satan takes whatever your worst sin is in your past and he'll tell you, you know what? That's the one that Jesus hasn't forgiven. And you keep beating yourself up over the rest of your life, and I want you handicapped so that you never experience God's grace in the way that God intended to, to experience it. I struggled with it. Like for many, like I, I'm still a work in progress. I mean, it's, it's one thing intellectually to understand that Jesus forgave me. It's another thing to, to, to live in that and to really understand grace. Um, on this last trip to Israel, during the baptisms, I shared this on the Good Friday service. But during the baptisms, um, 
I always love hearing the story. And, and on this Israel trip, so a lot of the people that were getting baptized, I didn't really know them. Like I, I got bits and pieces of the story. And we were there, these like big crowds. And then like guy, our tour guide kept looking, like Gunner, we like we're short on time. And I was like, relax, relax, like you know, like, and and one of the guys that shared this man Phil. All I knew is that he and his daughter had some like. There, there was some tension with them in the years past, and through Christ they had been reconnected, and this was. Um, a time for them to spend two weeks in the Holy Land together just to, to, to heal. The daughter had found me online, and he, was a, he flew uh, helicopters in the army, and so she's like, you're a Navy SEAL. It's a perfect pairing. And, and so he started sharing and about why he wanted to be baptized. He'd never been baptized before, and I think he was probably in his mid-60s or 60s or so. And, and he said, when I was younger, say between eight, like 21 and 30. He's like, I was in the military and I'd been out drinking with a buddy and we were, we were wasted. And I drove us home. And I woke up in a hospital and an ICU and they were kept giving me my stats about like how I was doing. And he said, during this like month period, they never mentioned anything about my friend. And he said, time went on, and he eventually, at a point where he had become healthy enough to hear the news, they told him that his, his good friend had been killed in this, in this car accident that he was driving. And he's like, so then I went on another few years, like waiting for the police to come, waiting to be arrested, and... and and he, I think he said the police finally came and said charges aren't being brought like against you kind of thing. And, and um, he said from that moment, it just led to a life of destruction. And he's like, eventually I came to know Christ as my Savior. But even after I came to know Christ as my Savior, I felt like a second-class Christian because of what I knew that I had done in my past Now, his story is extreme, but I think there are many of us trapped in our past, even though we're forgiven. And so this whole unpardonable sin, I don't, that's not what God's intention is by this. Our, the, the intention of this is to point you to Christ, to, to, to recognize that all means all. I don't care what you've done in your past. Like You, you might have sin in your past that requires you uh, to, to, to pay some consequences of the law, like, God's forgiveness doesn't, re- like, remove consequences, like, l- legally. But there are many of our brothers and sisters who were criminals and committed heinous crimes and legitimately did come to Christ in prison, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ fully. Now, they have to pay out their human sentence, and some of it at life or even capital punishment, but they're not going to be stained with a, a, some sort of scarlet letter in heaven that they're second-class citizens because their lives were not as uh, Christian as your life might have been. My prayer is that each one of us would come to understand this forgiveness in Christ and this grace that he offers to us.
but there's no neutral ground. There's, there's no hugging the line, kind of, if you're on the fence about who Jesus is. Either you're behind the table in front of the judge condemned, or you're, you're on the stand as a witness saying, I've been set free. Jesus, redeem me. He's more powerful than Satan. He's more powerful than my sin. He has set me free. I have been transformed. My sin is done. And so at this point in the story, we have Jesus, his family, and they're going to pick up next week. They're saying he's crazy. We have the the scribes saying he's bad. He is an evil man. And Jesus is standing before all of them saying, I am Lord. And I want to end with one of C.S. Lewis, Lewis's most famous quotes, which I think puts this all into perspective. C.S. Lewis writes, Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm adding, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the only thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else... or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on, at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall, on his feet, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so, Father, we come before you, Lord, um, either as people who stand condemned for our sin and rejection of Christ, or as those who have responded to the gospel And Lord, I pray for those that haven't reached the place in their life where they have responded. And I pray, God, that you would help them to understand the gospel, that it truly is finished. And all there is to do is to respond. And for those of us who have responded and have accepted this gift and have been transformed by the Spirit of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to stop beating ourselves up, to stop believing the lies of Satan that tell us that the cross only could cover so much ground and that our sin was far too great to truly be forgiven. Jesus was abundantly clear And the scriptures, the the epistles are abundantly clear. But in today's passage, Jesus is very, very clear. 
all sins may be forgiven in Him. And so, Father, I ask that You would help each one of us to truly understand this and embrace it and just worship Christ as God. We thank You for the work that He did on the cross. We thank You that in Him we stand white as snow. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.